Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order, and uh, we appreciate our witnesses being here. We've been paying a lot of attention um, to what's happening in Europe, and I uh, was at the World Economic Forum, I guess, a week and a half ago, and they're paying a lot of attention to us. Uh, I think the presidential race here and some of the comments that have been made have uh, caused people in Europe to uh, certainly focus right now on the, on the presidential race that we have underway and wondering, if you will, where U.S. foreign policy is, is going to go. Uh, at the same time, um, obviously because of the historical ties that we have, the, the long relationship um, uh, without a stable Europe, uh, that certainly affects U.S. foreign policy uh, in big ways. So we thank you very much for being here. There are tremendous challenges. I look at the challenges we have in our own country, um, which are large, and yet I look at uh, the European Union and the challenges that they're facing right now, and in many ways the, the problems that we have pale in comparison to, to the ones that they have. We, uh, the $87 billion bailout, uh, if you will, towards Greece, and yet them still having tremendous economic and political and fiscal issues to deal with as they move ahead. Uh, the U.K. referendum that may, uh, looks like it will be taking place, and you know, uh, Prime Minister Cameron uh, dealing with those issues and what they may, what that may mean for Scottish independence uh, should that occur. Uh, the Paris attacks and just the concerns of that in France, but also many uh, countries there relative to terrorism and countering that. Uh, the refugees and migrants uh, issue that is affecting uh, especially Germany, but so many of the member uh, countries and, you know, challenging how they uh, uniformly deal with that. And then uh, last and certainly not least, just a resurgent Russia and the pressures that that's putting on Europe, uh, certainly the periphery, and then how they all contend with that. So uh, tremendous issues. We thank you uh, for being here today. You're our witnesses. We appreciate the committee's willingness to hear this. And, you know, all of these things are putting tremendous pressure on the economic, monetary, and as well as political unions that are taking place there. And they matter to the U.S. They matter to us relative to our markets, relative to our manufacturers, and certainly relative to uh, just uh, the allies that we depend upon mutually uh, relative to, to just defense and national security and those kinds of things. So, again, we thank you for being here. And with that, I'll turn it over to our distinguished and great ranking member, uh, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first of all, thank you for uh, bringing this hearing uh, to our committee. And I think everyone should understand that yesterday uh, we had an opportunity in a closed setting to meet Secretary Newland to get the administration's uh, honest assessment of some of these challenges in Europe. And I think that was extremely helpful in preparation for today's hearing. So, Mr. Chairman, thank you for making those arrangements. And I'm going to ask consent that an article I authored in The Guardian be made part of our record. That way I can shorten my opening statement because I think it expresses many of the points that, that, that you also raised. And we both agree that we need a unified, stable, strong EU that's important to the United States, an EU that can speak out and take action on our common values of democracy, rule of law, respect for human rights, economic prosperity, peace and security. And uh, these are extremely challenging times. I think first on the challenge to Europe is how they're dealing with the refugee and migrant issue. 2015 estimated 1 million uh, refugees uh, coming out of Syria into Europe. 
that's a huge number uh, that, uh, that, that are dealing with when refugees are migrants. Uh, and we're seeing some activities that are inconsistent with the traditions uh, that we all support, where we see expulsion of asylum seekers in Finland and Sweden, where we see Turkey uh, being declared to be a safe third country so that they can ferry back from Greece uh, to Turkey those who've risked their lives to get out of Turkey into Greece, where refugees' assets are being seized in Denmark to EU working out a financial arrangement with Turkey in an effort to try to keep the, the uh, refugees in Turkey, uh, the challenge to the free and open borders between the countries of EU, uh, the failure to share information in a timely way because of other considerations. All that adds to the challenges we have with EU today on the, on the refugee crisis. And then uh, the threat of domestic terrorism and foreign fighters that the chairman mentioned, that's a, a real risk in Europe today. Nationalist trends, uh, questioning the democratic values, including some of our NATO allies and actions that they, we've seen in their government. And of course, the, 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 the greatest challenge uh, looking forward is Russia and Russia's influence as we see the challenge in Ukraine today. They, there's no progress being made on Crimea annexation. And Minsk too has been stuck for a long time and the prospects of implementing that in the way it was intended is unclear. So there, and of course, we could also talk about Georgia and Moldova as to, um, as to uh, the frozen conflicts with Russia. So Russia has also sought to erode support for EU institutions by funding anti-EU political parties, think tanks, NGOs, and media voices. Russia is using the very strengths of Europe's democratic society, free press, civil society, and open debate against it. The answer is not counter-propaganda, but the EU and U.S. should work together to clearly and unequivocally state our shared values. Uh, I also uh, want to acknowledge the concern about the U.K. Uh, and remaining in EU, and that's certainly of great interest to the United States, and the financial struggles of the EU, particularly uh, as we saw with Greece, still not being totally resolved. So, Mr. Chairman, we have a lot of issues uh, in regards to uh, carrying out a strong, stable uh, Europe that uh, has shared our values. I, I do want to acknowledge the two witnesses and make an apology. I, I need to leave for a few moments, but I'll be returning shortly. I know, Mr. Wilson, your dad's here. We very much appreciate you bringing your father with you. I understand he's a frequent visitor to our committee, so he just happened to be walking past the same committee that you're appearing in. Uh, but I thank both of our witnesses uh, for being here today. Thank you. Uh, with that, our first witness is Mr. Damon Wilson, as has been mentioned, Executive Vice President to, at the Atlantic Council, where he specializes in Eurozone, NATO, and transatlantic relations. Mr. Wilson is a former Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European Affairs at the National Security Council. And Mr. Wilson sitting behind him, if he needs any correction, please uh, interject <laughs> as he's making his presentation. Our second witness today is Ms. Julianne Smith, the Director of Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for a New American Security. Ms. Smith previously, previously served as Deputy National Security Advisor to the Vice President of the United States. We welcome you both. If you would present in the order I just uh, introduced you, I'd appreciate it. I think you know your written testimony without, uh, uh, without objection will be entered into the record. If you could summarize in about five minutes, that'd be appreciated, and then we'll be glad to uh, ask questions. So with that, Mr. Wilson, thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Corker, and um, uh, thank you, uh, Senator Murphy, for being here, I also want to just start by saying I very much agree with the sentiments in your opening remarks that you and Senator Cardin made. Um, 
Europe's in crisis. The continent faces a, actually a confluence of crises that's far more profound than most realize. And as a result, the United States risks losing its most important strategic asset in foreign affairs, which is a vibrant Europe as a partner, a first resort. I think right now is a time for the United States to shift from being an observer to an actor and return to the historic posture that we've played in helping to foster and forge European unity. Not for the sake of some vision of just of united Europe, but so that we have a European partner that's better equipped to work with us on the enormous global challenges. It's clear that today Europe is facing historic tests. To its east, Russia seeks to roll back the gains of the post-Cold War period, aiming to rewrite the rules fundamental to Europe's security, undermine Europe's unity, its core values, and foster instability on its periphery. And to the south, the erosion of state authority and borders in the Middle East threatens Europe with mass refugee flows and Islamic terrorism. But the greatest challenge to Europe is not external, it is internal. There's a crisis in confidence, a loss of a sense of strategic purpose, if you will, but puts at risk the so-called European project, this idea that you can turn former adversaries into an integrated union. This greater integration has failed to restore growth and foster innovation, create jobs. European publics and leaders are questioning the fundamental political bargain that underpins the EU. Essentially, we have centrifugal forces pulling the European Union apart, and we see EU leaders stumbling from crisis to crisis. They reach short-term agreements, but they're essentially failing to address the long-term challenges. And as a result, now we see the Union itself in question. As you mentioned, the UK may turn its back on the EU this year, depriving us of a critical voice in shaping the future of Europe. Such decisions may, Scott, may prompt Scotland to dissolve the United Kingdom, and these could fuel more separatist efforts across the continents, opening the prospects of other states leaving the EU. And at a minimum, we know that the Brexit debate will uh, occupy Europe's political attention span for the year. So we see these challenges, a stagnating France unable to rally Europe around counterterrorism policy, um, a German style of leadership that just might be too cautious in this environment, um, we see populism and nationalism rearing their ugly heads in Central and Eastern Europe, and our Mediterranean allies mired in, in low growth. There is a historic transition taking place whose outcome is uncertain and implications little understood, but the stakes for us are enormous because the EU is the largest economy, foreign assistance donor, carries enormous political weight, and it is the most operable and deployable of the militaries among our partners. So Europe's internal challenges have now become, I think, a critical strategic problem for us. And we list cruising Europe lost in the politics of the parochial as our most militarily capable, political willing, and financially able, like-minded partner. But I think this actually presents us with an opportunity to re-engage. Re After all, it was the two devastating world wars that taught the Americans the cost of remaining aloof. So I think our goal today should be a little bit bigger than what we're thinking about. How should we help restore a sense of the Atlantic community's confidence, competitiveness, capacity, and will to act at home and abroad? And I think there's a path to do this. And first, it's about how we gain our role in fostering European unity. The European project was an American project. We don't simply return to the past and Cold War tactics. The EU is far more complex and savvy. But it does begin with us helping to be clear on things like the United Kingdom, uh, making it clear the United Kingdom without a voice in Europe um, is the United Kingdom at risk losing its relevance. In turn, a Brussels that doesn't reform in response to Prime Minister Cameron's uh, demands risks itself losing the legitimacy in a way that's not going to be overcome some of the biggest obstacles it faces. And for our own policy, while we have problems, we need to engage, not isolate certain leaders, trying to anchor them with political and moral tether 
while making it clear that there's no space for illiberal, illiberal democracies within our community. It's clear to get this right, you can't do it without growth. It's a strategic imperative. This is why I think our objective of an, of an ambitious transatlantic trade and investment partnership is so critical to help unleash uh, innovation and entrepreneurship linked with what we're trying to do on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And it's why the current debate on digital and privacy matters because it remains whether this will be a driver for growth in Europe or where Europe will opt out. Third, we have to take bold steps to bolster the NATO alliance, make sure it's strong and central to our national security policy. Yesterday, Secretary, Ash, Secretary Ash's announcement went a long way in this direction, but this does mean adopting deterrent policies, including significant combat forces in NATO's eastern flank, building the deterrent capability of our eastern allies and partners, and working to push Germany to take on a greater defense role. Um, it's clear that we need a stronger European pillar of the alliance, but we won't achieve that by ceding leadership the alliance or passing the baton to the EU. And fourth, the United States has to lead Europe in forging a strategy for Europe's east. There's a challenge from Russia. The EU's ill-equipped to handle it alone. It's held remarkably well on sanctions, but we don't have a comprehensive strategy that's going to avoid allowing Russia to hold Europe's neighbors in the east hostage with frozen conflicts and occupied territories. Um, at the same time, we need to be working more decisively to eliminate these avenues for Moscow to influence our allies through corruption or energy. And finally is, the, is Europe's southern challenge, which is equally our own. We've been a central actor in these crises. We carry some responsibility to work with Europe to respond. That means, obviously, a more decisive approach in the crises themselves, a military commitment sustained in Afghanistan, but ways to look at how we can rally Europe on counterterrorism, intelligence sharing, and a capacity-building initiative with partners in North Africa and the Middle East. And there's a space for more moral leadership from the United States by how we welcome refugees from the region and how we protect programs like the Visa Waiver Program, uh, which actually are an engine, economic engine for us. To close, the, it's only the United States right now in this debate that can really give, rally the transatlantic community towards a greater purpose. We either come together to shape this future or we concede it to this role to less benevolent actors. It was Europe and North America that helped really build the liberal international order that brought so much prosperity, security to so many people. But we see inward looking trends on both sides of the Atlantic that if, if left unchallenged can undermine this. I think there's time and a specific recipe for a new savvy era of US leadership to help adapt and revitalize this order. It's clear that if we face these challenges with a Europe in disarray in the coming years, it's going to be far more difficult. Um, but we can play that gal galvanizing role. It's kind of like in politics today. If we, in politics, I think you need to begin by rallying our base, and Europe is our base. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Smith. Chairman Corker, thank you very much for the opportunity to testify today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and I agree in large part with what Damon just presented. I do believe that the EU is in crisis, and I do believe that it is at risk of unraveling. Given all of the challenges that the EU faces right now, whether we're talking about the migration crisis, which stands to alter the face of Europe for years to come, or the counterterrorism challenges from the foreign fighters that are traveling to Syria and that may return to European soil, or the homegrown terrorist uh, threat that exists on Europe's territory, to resurgent Russia, to the rise of anti-EU political parties and the potential exit of the United Kingdom, to the weak economies all across Europe, 
we're now finding that Europeans are starting to ask some very hard questions about the viability of the EU as an institution. Within the EU itself, we have a number of EU officials that are asking questions about the EU's vitality as its aging structures try to deal with a number of geostrategic surprises. In national capitals across Europe, we're finding that member states are starting to question EU solidarity as calls for help fall on deaf ears. And in the streets of Europe, we find European citizens questioning the value of an institution that they believe is unresponsive to their needs. I believe that America has a vested interest in helping preserve this European project. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, the United States was not a founding member of the European Union, but through the European Recovery Plan, the Marshall Plan as it's more famously called, we were able to help rebuild Europe after the war and restore its confidence and make it more prosperous. Since then, the United States has had a very strong interest in supporting the EU and seeing it succeed. Second, I would note that the EU-US is actually the backbone, the EU-US relationship is actually the backbone of the Western Alliance, and I think a fractured or divided European Union weakens it and it emboldens our adversaries at a time when they're challenging us from all sides. Third, the European Union plays a critical role in the US foreign policy agenda. I think some like to sometimes joke about how the EU has a preference for dialogue over action, but in reality, the EU brings international legitimacy, clout, skilled diplomacy, and real capabilities. And they've been instrumental in helping the United States on a number of challenges in recent months, whether we're talking about the Iran nuclear deal, or helping the people of Ukraine, or layering on sanctions against a resurgent Russia, or a, very, uh, a variety of counterterrorism measures. In short, I think when we talk about the European Union, we have to admit that in this case, the whole is indeed greater than the sum of its parts. I would also note that a weak or distracted Europe or EU removes a critical carrot that we have relied on for countries that are not yet members of the European Union. And we have used together that carrot to integrate these countries into Western institutions, like the countries in Central and Eastern Europe some time ago. I would also state, as was mentioned earlier, that the EU, of course, sits at the heart of the global economy. The EU-US trade relationship is the largest in the world. And I think a collapse of either the euro or the EU would have severe ramifications for the global economy, for the value of the dollar, and for US employment. As a result, I think the US does need to work to, with Europe to try and strengthen and prop up this institution as it's facing a seemingly intractable list of challenges. But I also think we have to be clear-eyed about the degree to which the United States can help Europe shape the EU's future. That said, I think there are a few things that we can do in the short and medium term, and I've outlined those in my testimony today. Things such as assisting Europe with the migration crisis, which frankly I think is going to get a lot worse this spring, in no small part thanks to Russia's role in the conflict in Syria. 
I think we need to energize and redesign the EU-US relationship, which has atrophied in recent years. I also think we need to press our friends in London not to exit the EU because it would issue a devastating blow to this institution. And lastly, I do think we need to, in the medium term, try and focus on delivering on TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. In this environment that we're in right now, this extremely complex security environment with so many challenges coming at us each and every day, I think it's easy to stay focused and get absorbed with what we're fighting. But I think we also can't afford to lose sight of what we must fight to preserve. And finding ways to harness US leadership to ensure that the European Union does not collapse needs to be a top U.S. priority. Thank you. Thank you both for your testimony. Now, uh, Ms. Smith, I apologize for having to step out a moment. Um, it's part of being around here. Let me uh, ask you both this. I, I look at uh, Cameron's ask, if you will, of the European Union, and um, it's hard to discern whether they are real uh, from, uh, from a standpoint of substance or whether he's just looking for something, if you will, um, to say that he got something, or whether it's all being totally driven by, by just internal politics. And I'd love to have your assessment of, of what his requests are at this moment and what's actually driving them. And if you sense a real desire on his part just to get something so that, uh, if you will, the debate about the, uh, the referendum will be different in nature. I can take that first. Um, it, it's a combination of both. Politics is driving it, and it's built on the backbone of some, some key issues. He's outlined four asks about the protection of the non-euro area, City of London in particular, uh, competition issues within the EU, ending the sense of ever closer union, and the benefits restriction. All of them have merit, particularly in the British debate and expectations about the EU. I have two concerns, however, about it. Fundamentally, I think the backlash against the EU is, is this an institution that's it's been seen as becoming an overly bureaucratic, uh, intrusive element of, of life based out of Brussels. What the four asks don't deliver is a fundamental rethink and reform of how the EU actually operates. But the second side of this equation is the riskiness of what uh, Prime Minister Cameron has put in play. Whether he gets uh, the degree on any of these four issues may at the end of the day be, be I don't want to say irrelevant, but the amount of refugees flowing into Europe the week of the referendum may have more to do with the outcome of that referendum. I think it's a very risky proposition as you can see the fluctuation in how people vote in referendums and it becomes an alternative substitute for expression of other concerns about what's gripping Europe. And in today's turbulent times with, as you see, Europe taking, I think it's a very risky proposition that even if he were able to get everything he wants, and I think his European partners who have dragged their feet on this but will come along, I'm not sure that's the fundamental issue that the British people will take to the polls. Ms. Smith? Uh, I would just add, when Cameron decided to commit himself to this referendum uh, around the election last year, I think the risk of the folks in the UK actually voting to leave the EU was relatively low. Uh, the EU and the UK have always had a complicated relationship, and to be sure, there has been a significant debate about the value of the UK being inside the EU for quite some time. 
But as Damon pointed out, now this is a risky gamble because the migration crisis has layered on additional complaints and concerns about the EU's ability to protect its citizens and to protect its borders. And when you pair that with just general disaffection about globalization, you've got a dangerous mix where we're now seeing some polls indicating that this could in fact very well happen. Now, if the EU actually delivers on some of the requests that Cameron has made to show that he's bringing about reform, maybe we can or they can persuade the UK public that this is worth continuing to engage in as an institution. But again, I'm not exactly sure Brussels is ready to go as far as Cameron needs it to go. And I'm not exactly sure that the leadership inside London is prepared to press the UK public on the geostrategic value of being inside this institution. I think our role is gonna have to be careful, a careful one. If we give a very public bear hug uh, to our friends in London and stress the importance of the EU, in some cases that can backfire. I think that said, we can send very important uh, messages to other folks in leadership positions and drive home the point that we view this as a critical decision point, one that would affect the transatlantic relationship, the UK and the United States directly. Yeah, on that note, just briefly, I, I, I know the president is planning to, to make a pretty big public uh, outreach in this regard. I remember Cameron uh, pushing us on some issues that recently came out. I, I gotta be honest, it was not received well. It certainly wasn't by me personally. Um, so how, how do you think the people of, uh, of UK will respond to us at the highest level um, embracing this, if you will? Well, I think, you know, in the, in the words of my former boss, uh, Vice President Biden, it's, it's never in your interest to tell another man what's in his interest, and it presents itself with challenges and, again, can backfire. Uh, but I think in this case, laying out a geostrategic debate not trying to lecture the UK public, not trying to make the full case of why they need to continue to be part of this institution, but to give a little perspective. They're looking at it very much through a domestic lens, and I think it would not hurt to make a broader debate about the state of the world. We face a resurgent Russia. We face challenges in Europe's south. We need transatlantic unity right now more than anything, and laying that out for the British public no doubt would be helpful, but again, it has to be perceived in the right light and not be perceived as lecture. Let me ask you, the, the, I met with the Secretary General of NATO um, at the forum I was telling you about earlier, and I guess there are some elements within Europe now that are beginning to look at the European Union having its own uh, security alliance, which, um, I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, we can't even get most of the countries to, to pay their fair share uh, relative to, to NATO. As a matter of fact, one of the few countries that is, UK just uh, passed a budget that takes them there eventually. Uh, Greece, believe it or not, is one of the few countries that's actually contributing at 2%. So all of this that's happening, and you've got the, the Russian issue that certainly is putting external pressure on the union, but. How are all, the, all of these issues uh, uh, affecting, from your perspective, the NATO alliance at itself, which from a national security standpoint is obviously very, very important to us and 
hate to be too pejorative, but to them as consumers of our security services, uh, obviously very important to them whether they uh, want to acknowledge that or not. But what, how are these pressures affecting the NATO alliance itself? Excuse me, Senator, I think this is fundamental. In a, in a, in a time right now when the greatest challenge in Europe is, is from a resurgent Russia and its approach, we need a stronger European pillar on security but that's gonna be insufficient. The Russians won't even take the EU as a serious interlocutor on these issues. So part of what's going through, what we're seeing right now, and a lot happening but insufficient, is as a NATO that's relearning actually how to think about defense on a continent. We had lost the muscle movements of doing this. And it has to be US led, but it's gotta galvanize the Europeans. We're seeing that now with a group of countries in the East joining some of the others and moving their defense budgets up. But the real, real challenges are where, where's Germany? Where are some of the key uh, uh, laggards, if you will, in the investment? Yeah, Germany's side. at 1%. Right. right at, so. And of course, we have you know, a plethora of NATO and US troops in Germany, which I think makes them feel pretty safe. Ms. Smith, you want to address that? Um, just so over the years, uh, for quite a long time, and we've been hearing about plans for the EU to strengthen its foreign and defense capabilities and policies pretty much since the late 1990s. And we've always had concerns about what it would ultimately do to NATO and what impact yeah. it would have. Um, on the other hand, we've also had times where we've realized we need more capacity. And if it's helpful for European countries to develop that capacity inside EU channels, in essence, we're talking about the same set of troops. But the reality is right now within EU that is distracted, divided, resource scarce, I think this is a second order priority. And frankly, I don't see the EU making any advances on this front. It does, however, what's happening inside Brussels play into the NATO alliance. And it worries me and Damon and others greatly. We talk about this regularly, about how we have a Europe that is distracted by a number of internal crises. And it prevents the alliance in many ways from lifting its head and looking out at the challenges to its east and its south. There have been a lot of things done since Russia annexed Crimea, important initiatives by the NATO alliance. But frankly, when you talk to the folks inside the alliance, you feel the strain, you feel the divides. We have countries in Central and Eastern Europe that are questioning the Article 5 commitment, worried about solidarity inside NATO and the EU, and really are turning to the United States in many ways to deliver should any crises erupt on NATO territory. Thank you both. Um, I know there's numbers of other questions. Uh, Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see uh, you both. Um, w one quick attempt at a counter narrative and then a, a few specific questions. Um, you can certainly view all of these challenges that we've listed, uh, Russian aggression, the uh, Greek crisis, the migration crisis, as weaknesses within the alliance. But you can also read them as strengths, given the fact that in each instance there was an existential threat to the European Union itself, and they have thus far adapted and survived all of these crises, which you can argue in the lifetime of the alliance are as big and as tough as they have faced. Uh, and so I don't deny that there is, there is some level of crisis, but you can read the reaction to many of these challenges in an optimistic way, just as you can read it in a pessimistic way. Um, and, and so I, I want to take one of the um, sort of slow-burning crises underneath the broader umbrella 
maybe doesn't get a lot of attention, and I'll direct the question to you, Mr. Wilson. Um, and, and this is the, the crisis of data sharing uh, within the European Union and then with the United States. Um, so our ability to protect ourselves as a nation with the no-fly list is only as good as the information that is shared within Europe about law enforcement and then shared with the United States. In addition to the importance of law enforcement data, we also have a major outstanding question about how U.S. technology companies are going to be able to do business in Europe with a European court case right now that compromises the, the relationship that our companies have with European governments. Um, as you probably know, we have a piece of legislation that is pending on the floor of the Senate right now, the Judicial Redress Act which the Europeans have said is both a preconditioned to a new law enforcement agreement, the umbrella agreement going into effect, and is necessary to also work out this question over how U.S. technology companies are going to interact in Europe. I, I, I just wanted to ask your opinion about the importance of, of this piece of legislation, which is pending on the floor of the Senate today, but also your assessment of how Europeans are doing amongst themselves in sharing data, especially when it comes to potential terrorism investigations um, and, and, how, and how much more pressure we can put on them to populate the records that we share in a more meaningful way. Thank you, Senator. Uh, on your first point on the narrative, the, the way, the long term in which I'm optimistic is this, you think about what's happening with this complexity. Our societies, the United States and Europe, um, are the most capable of managing dynamism and change. So this is messy. I think the crises are real. We're slow to galvanize and rally, but we will move in that direction. I think this gives us a leg up if you think globally and we actually need to be able to understand that we can harness that change in dynamism because of the, the nature of open democratic societies. And that's why coming together gives me optimism over the long term. On the specific issue you raised, the division between the United States and Europe on, on digital privacy, cyber, first of all, the, the principle is that division's very unhelpful. It opens the space for adversaries and it, it really creates problems for American firms. So how do we get aligned? And I think we're moving in that direction. You've seen the recent the, the, the deal that's been uh, announced and this piece of legislation, the Judicial Redress Act, I think is part of that. We need to take privacy seriously. It's an engine for economic growth, so we've got to get this right. Um, and we've got national security elements there. I think the legislation that's under debate right now provides some of the assurances for privacy protection, provides the safeguards we need on national security that it's moving in the Senate combined with the negotiations that have just played out is a way to help bridge this gap and ensure that this doesn't become a big transatlantic divide opening space for those that don't share our interests, but that we come to an agreement that is both practical, security-oriented, and political um, that allows American companies to compete while still taking privacy seriously and protecting our security interests. Mr. Chairman, the legislation that I'm talking about is uh, out of the Judiciary Committee. It's Senator Hatch and I's legislation pending on the floor, and I think as a committee it would be um, uh, important for, for us to weigh in on its passage. It passed the House unanimously, so it's just waiting on us. Um, Ms. Smith, I wanted to just turn to um, this new $3.4 billion European reassurance uh, initiative that was announced. Um, I'm wholeheartedly supportive of it. I think it um, scratches many of our allies exactly where they itch. Um, but but it, it worries me in only one respect, which is that, um, you know, I think we need to have a recognition that military, military influence is the 
method of last resort for the Russians in terms of how they expand their influence in and around the continent. Uh, their preferred means of influence is buying off uh, government officials, extending the reach of their propaganda campaigns, uh, further monopolizing uh, energy trade. Um, and yet we are not announcing a quadrupling of our assistance for anti-corruption programs or energy assistance or anti-propaganda campaigns or economic development assistance for developing nations on the periphery of Russia. Um, so maybe talk to me about sort of what a right-sized U.S. approach is to countering uh, Russian interference and influence. And am I right that this can't simply be a question of putting more troops in and around the Russian border because ultimately that's playing a different game than the Russians are really playing on a daily basis separate and aside from what they're doing today in places like Ukraine or Georgia. You're absolutely right, Senator. Uh, Russia has very skillfully relied on an array of instruments to show its aggression towards neighbor states, um, some inside NATO territory, some outside, obviously Ukraine, best case in point. They are relying on strategic communications tools, cyber tools, uh, energy coercion. They're using every tool in their toolbox. And our response has to equally be a full spectrum response. We need a plan and we need resources for the agencies in our government to address some of these other areas. I fully support what DOD is doing and I applaud it. I'd like to see it become permanent. Uh, and I think it's an important part of our deterrence posture to deter the Russians from messing around on NATO territory and further uh, pursuing its aggressive behavior even in non-NATO member states territory. But all that said, DOD cannot be the only agency crafting a proper response to the threats stemming out of Moscow. And I think you're right to stress not only resources, the importance of resources and new policies and tools being made available in the U.S. government, but also inside the NATO alliance, inside the EU-U.S. relationship, there are other roles for international institutions to play. NATO is trying to grapple with the cybersecurity threat but has not made significant progress. We, as the United States, should lead that effort inside the alliance, but we have to get our house in order here at home and ensure that we're presenting our allies with a full-spectrum response to what Russia is bringing at us right now. I just think we're playing into their hands if our only response is a major plus up on military support. Uh, that's incredibly important, but it's got to be complemented by other pieces of this puzzle. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony and your insights. Um, I wanted to explore with you uh, a concern I have that uh, gives me the sense that w we, uh, in many different uh, moments in bilateral contexts have uh, effectively conceded our position of relative power or strength vis-a-vis -vis a certain set of circumstances in order to come to an accommodation. Now, accommodation in and of itself is something to aspire to, but it is the nature of the accommodation that is very important. So, uh, without going through a listing of what those accommodations have taken place that make me concerned. 
I look at these uh, reports of a negotiation between the United States and Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Uh, and um, my question is, with respect to Ukraine, would you say that the United States or Russia holds uh, the relative position of strength or power? Senator, this is an excellent question because this is the lesson. The only ones I ask. <laughs> Well, at least I'd like to think so, but they're this, not always so good, so anyhow. Well, you're hitting at a point that the Russians have internalized. We are uncomfortable with an uncomfortable relationship with Russia. And we, the Russians have watched us over years of diplomacy in the transatlantic community of negotiate with ourselves when we're in a tight spot with the Russians. If you look at the, frankly, sloppy, but for an understandable reason, sloppy diplomatic agreements over Georgia or Ukraine, these were negotiated in a crisis late at night, the Russians have learned that there isn't really great stomach in fighting for some of these issues. We're committed to the principles, but do we really want to fight to apply them in some of these messy countries, which are messy? So I think the accommodation issue that you raise is the red flag we have to watch out for right now. Mm. You listen to some of our European allies, some of our, our counterparts here, and there is an eagerness to figure out how do we get this right. We may need a dialogue with Russia because of transparency, predictability issues. This is a dangerous set of issues that are unfolding. But we need to hold firm on some of the core principles, uh, the restoration uh, ultimately of Ukraine's uh, national sovereignty and control of its territory. The Russians have the short-term high ground because of facts on the ground. The, Senate, the, the strategy that Senator Murphy was referring to is why it's so important not to piecemeal it. When you roll out sanctions by themselves, well, that causes some questions in, in Europe about the cost that we pay. When you roll out military by itself, it's a, it's a little bit of a, uh, doesn't capture the spirit. What deterrence is, is an understanding in Moscow that there is a comprehensive long-term strategy that the United States is leading with its European partners that is based on these certain principles and values so that the pathway of short-term accommodation isn't going to be where we go. We've, we've sort of helped swallow some of that as we've seen the aftermath of 2008 in Georgia. The Russians are banking on that in this crisis, and I think it's absolutely right to say, you know, we're, we're comfortable with an uncomfortable relationship with you right now. Here are some of the principles that we're guided by, mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean you don't talk, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean you open up this pathway to actually salami slicing your own principles. Ms. Smith, I, I, when I heard you talk before, I, I want you to answer that question too, but when I heard you talk before about the Russians using all of the tools in their toolbox, uh, they're seeking to divide the union, using NGO monies, uh, energy as a form of blackmail, I would say, my words, not anybody else's, but, uh, you know, tell, talk to me about this concern about accommodation when they are using all the tools in their toolbox and. My sense is we're not using all the potential tool, uh, tools we have in ours. Yeah, I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think in, uh, Russia does look across the Atlantic and look at its European partners and they see that we are distracted. They see that we are in many ways divided on next steps. I think they see and they hear the rhetoric coming out of Europe in particular 
questioning the utility of our sanctions policy, and they know that we're all worried about our ability to stay the course on the sanctions policy, which is one of the strongest tools that we're using right now. They see that we have limited resources in some ways. The US, from a military perspective, obviously has fewer forces in Europe, and so they do feel emboldened right now, particularly as they look at Brussels and see the number of crises that are hitting this institution on a weekly basis. And so what we have to do is push back and obviously invest in a wider toolkit, but most importantly, we have to preserve this transatlantic unity and not let the divides and discussions we're having on sanctions really steer us off into a divided Europe and the United States. And I do think the United States needs to get more engaged vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. We've relied heavily on our friends in Paris and Berlin to really lead the negotiations through this Normandy format. I think that was a smart move initially, but now I'd really like to see a formal role for the United States in that process. We're obviously in close touch with our European allies all the time and talking to them on a regular basis, but this needs to be a concerted transatlantic approach. And so I would like to see us up our game, so to speak, and invest in other instruments and have a little bit more of, a, of resolve as we address Russia and try and take on this challenge, which is by no means going away. Mm. And in that line, I think the last time you testified before the committee was the Subcommittee on European Affairs back in 2014, I think. And you said at that time that moving forward, we need to keep Crimea, quote, in the back of our minds. And the key to dealing with Russia was getting the NATO peace right. In 2016 now, and with another NATO summit set for uh, this summer, what do you believe the focus should be on getting the NATO peace right? Well, what was announced yesterday by the United States is a good first step. What happens oftentimes is that the U.S. chooses to lead and we spur action on the part of our part uh, partners. We saw in the case when Russia first annexed Crimea, first went into Ukraine, that when the United States came forward with the billion dollar commitment, it then was able to knock on the doors of our European partners to say, what will your piece be of this? We are not going to do this alone. We will do this as partners. This will be our contribution, but we need you with us. And that's a much stronger negotiating position than simply coming in and saying, what will you guys be prepared to deliver? And so similarly, now as we approach the Warsaw summit, the US again comes to the table saying, folks, we've tripled our commitment here, and we need all of Europe to step up and help us. Not again, to Senator Murphy's point, not just in regards to the military instrument, but really we have to come with a broader plan here. But I do think the focus, look, at the, the last NATO summit in Wales was very much on reassurance, right? Reassuring our allies in Central and Eastern Europe, very important, we did some good work there. But now we have to focus heavily on deterrence and figure out what more we need to be doing to deter the Russians from doing anything crazy. Because if there's one thing we've learned in the last two years, it's that they're entirely unpredictable. And so we should make no assumptions. I know people say, well, they would never do X, they would never do Y. Let's not be so sure about that, let's be prepared at every turn. And I think the NATO alliance is working towards some new initiatives, but it's going to require a lot of leadership that's in short supply, particularly on the other side of the Atlantic. Mr. Wilson, any observations? I think there are four key points for the alliance. It is this shift from reassurance to deterrence. Reassurance means you don't really trust me, and I need to reassure my allies. Deterrence focuses on the mindset of the adversary. I would, in fact, I think Secretary Ash's announcement was great. I would rename it 
not the European Reassurance Initiative, we've got to decisively move in Warsaw to deterrence. Second is resilience, the resilience of our own societies, particularly those in the East, um, because of the other methods that the Russians are using that has to enter into a plank in the NATO discourse and not just be left to the European Union. Third is really the idea that the alliance had so long embraced about how it projects stability. Well, right now, it doesn't want to have that conversation. The alliance doesn't know what its role should be with some of the partners in the East and the South. We need to get over some of that, uh, that concern about NATO and Ukraine or we need to be building deterrent capability in Sweden, Finland, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, defense capacity initiatives. That's a big gap right now for the Warsaw Summit because it's politically sensitive. And then the final one, the current debate that's really pulling at the alliance is how to structure a dialogue with Russia where some don't want it, some don't trust the nature of it. And I think there's a case to be made for transparency and predictability, but it needs to be done in a way that doesn't play on the neuroses of some of our allies that will start to accommodate, if you will. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you both for your participation here. Let me, um, we talked about the NATO summit and uh, Europe has had the operations of the OSCE for a long time. It works under the three pillars for stability, certainly to be able to defend your borders. Economic opportunity is absolutely essential, but also the pillar of good governance, democracy, human rights. So you've given some response to the NATO summit in regards to the military threats to our NATO allies uh, coming from Russia. But let me talk from within for one moment. We have NATO allies that have done things that are inconsistent with the commitments to good governments and democracy. The most recent being uh, the actions in Poland uh, in uh, a law that curbs media and judicial freedom. We know the extreme party in Hungary and its impact on decisions in that country, and there are others. So uh, as we talk about a strategy for long-term stability and strength uh, and unity in Europe, uh, it needs to reflect the values that I said in my opening statement. So what strategies should we be deploying either at a NATO summit or in our conversations with Europe or in our um, uh, investments to, to strengthen the, the democratic institutions, including in countries that we thought we had already uh, crossed that bridge. Senator, this is a, a critical point um, because at the end of the day, what makes this relationship quite valuable and special is the anchoring of the values that bring us together. This is not a transactional one-time alliance. It's built on that longevity, and this has been challenged. Uh, the OSC is an important instrument in this domain. In fact, you see the European Union often struggling to come to a common position in the EU um, over the values and interest angle. I think that's alarming because it opens up space. Uh, I think there needs to be a serious set of private consultations. Part of the problem we have, and I've talked to some of these leaders who we have some concerns about with what they're doing. Uh, they feel a little bit isolated. They see a lack of leadership. They're kind of turned off by what's happening in Brussels, and they're not really engaged at the political level very much in the United States. This isn't an excuse for them, but they've used that to take their marbles and play another game at home. Uh, these are our allies. They're treaty allies. We're committed to defend each other. We can't let this corrode and, and go in that uh, direction. So as we think about corruption as a national security issue, it's the avenues of corruption that Russia is using had used to manipulate Ukraine is now using in Europe. 
And I think the State Department's begun important work, but corruption is a national security issue and therefore how we plan, think, our intelligence, the way we operate around that set of issues needs to go up uh, in the priorities, combined with a set of serious political engagement. Um, we haven't had some, at the senior political level, some of these leaders have actually never been engaged that way. They're our allies. I think we have to engage them, embrace them with some very tough love and privately. Um, and so I think there's a political piece and a corruption as a national security strategy that needs to come together. And it can play out at NATO, it can play out at the OSC. I wouldn't wed it to one institution. But I think we need to play a role, particularly in galvanizing perhaps Chancellor Merkel uh, as our partner uh, in taking this on. I agree with everything that Damon said. I think engaging these types of leaders directly is absolutely critical. Many of them lack relationships here in Washington, and I think reestablishing those ties and making clear to them that the United States is concerned about some of the developments that they're seeing unfold in their own countries is going to be critical. But I also think trying to figure out how we can support civil society in these countries is absolutely critical. We have some institutions that do terrific work, but frankly, we could be doing a lot more. This whole agenda set has atrophied quite significantly over the last 20 or so years, because I think we all thought that Europe was whole, free, and at peace. And now we've come to learn that there are some troubling developments within the European continent. And so I think re-engaging those ties and providing, in some cases, resources to American nonprofits or think tanks that are focused on engaging civil society in these countries will be absolutely critical moving forward. Yeah, clearly, Russia's engagement in Ukraine is the driving force for the instability. There's no question about that uh, with Crimea still under Russian control and their influence in the eastern part of Ukraine, the failure to move forward with Minsk II, and we go through a lot of other issues. But I want to go to Ukraine itself. Uh, many believe that the uh, Maidan was all about people wanting an honest government and an opportunity to be able to have a chance in their country, more so than whether it was aligned with the East or West, quite frankly. Uh, we saw the Minister of Economy resign, uh, I think, yesterday or today. Uh, we know that they have a huge corruption issue that is not new, but it's been a challenge for the uh, government officials to break up the network that has existed in Ukraine for a long time. Can you tell us your prognosis and what the United States needs to do in order to make anti-corruption uh, a reality in the policies in Ukraine? I think there are a number of concerns about what's happening inside Kiev, inside Ukraine right now. And we're obviously watching and tracking developments there and their efforts to reform and address the corruption problem that you mentioned, Senator. But I think we also have to appreciate how hard it has been for Poroshenko to simultaneously manage literally fighting going on inside Ukraine driven by Russia in large part and simultaneously simultaneously deliver on those campaign promises to reform the government, fight corruption, be more legitimate, answer to people's concerns. 
And I'm worried that if he doesn't deliver, then in fact we'll see another round of this. I mean, the Ukrainian people do not hesitate to take to the streets when they're concerned about the future of their country. All that said, I think Poroshenko is a good and effective leader. He has challenges. He has relationships that are not working for but him. But as you point out, he unless he deals with the internal issues, he cannot succeed. The that people, is correct. So what can the United States do other than continuing to support Ukraine's independence, which we do, and we'll yes. continue to do that in every quarter, including sanctions, what can we do well, to we're give him a better chance to implement? Because I think he wants to implement these policies. He does. How do we give him a stronger hand internally in Ukraine? Well, the United States has provided a number of advisors to try and go in and help reform some of these ministries, and we'll have to maintain that engagement at the highest levels. We're also going to have to provide resources. The United States has provided resources to Ukraine. So has our so have our friends in Europe. It's not enough. They're going to need more. They're also going to need a lot of hand-holding at the highest levels. I mean, Vice President Biden has been over there repeatedly. He's been engaged. We're going to need high-level engagement from the State Department, from the White House, um, from every agency possible to try and keep him on track. Uh, but I think without U.S. and European assistance, this simply will not happen. If I could just add to that point, because I think this is critical, because this is where the battle for Ukraine is right now. Uh, we need to recognize, we, we call it a, a revolution, the Maidan revolution, and yet the leaders have delivered, Prime, President Poroshenko, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, are creatures of the past. We, we need to see these as historically transitional leaders that will tip it more in the right direction, but we need to understand where they come from. This wasn't a revolutionary class that took over in that sense. So there are four, I'd say five things we need to be drilling down on. The first is at the political level. You set the tone by the president, the prime minister themselves, and we've got some problems there. I would have liked to have seen a President Poroshenko that divested of his media assets, put his bulk of his financial holdings in a blind trust, and repudiated his Ukrainian government salary to set the tone from the very beginning it's not too late for him to take steps like that to really set the signal because that tells people this is a new game in town. He hasn't done that. Second is the prosecutor general and the judiciary. Um, we've seen when you, get the, when you lock in the independence of the judiciary, as we saw in Romania, um, it can be powerful. If you look at what's happened in Romania over the past two, three years because of this, this is the battle that's playing out right now. The prosecutor general and how you protect the independence of the judiciary they don't have it right yet, and I think we're in pretty heated conversations with them. The third is the process. Um, what we've seen from Estonia to Georgia is the more that you can get rid of processes that create opportunities for corruption through electronic, through transparency, and that's stuff that can play out concurrent with what we're doing. We're seeing it experimented in Ukraine. You've got to embrace that wholesale, as we saw Georgia and Estonia do. Um, and the last two, as Julie said, civil society in Ukraine is the story. I mean, it is an, an incredible story. There is an agency in that country that um, is, is quite valuable, and we need to stay aligned with, committed with the, the non-governmental organizations that at the end of the day serve as an incredible check on any president uh, or prime minister or government of Ukraine, and will continue to do so. And the final is the linkage of our own assistance. As we grow our assistance and hopefully coordinate it better with the European Union, there's a way to link some of this specifically to some of the benchmarks on the corruption threshold. I think the good suggestions. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both very much for being here and for all of the work that you have done. 
um, on the topic of US-EU relations. Um, I had the opportunity to speak with some ambassadors from former Eastern Europe and former Soviet republics last week. And um, they said very much what both of you have said, that um, we need to do more to support um, EU during these challenging times and um, to be very clear about how we stand with respect to Russia and not send any mixed signals. Um, so I want to I explore a little bit more some of the suggestions that you all have made. But first, I want to go to what I think is one of the challenges right now that Congress needs to address, and that is our failure to um, confirm nominees to the State Department who are going to put in place policies that do the kinds of things that you all have talked about. And I know our chairman is very much on board um, with trying to confirm these nominees, but, but let me just lay some of them out. So you talked about, I think, Mr. Wilson, you talked about the importance of our Scandinavian partners and shoring them up as we think about NATO. What kind of message does it send to Sweden um, that 265 days after the ambassador was nominated, or 398 days, actually, after the ambassador was nominated, so over a year, we still have not taken up confirmation of the ambassador to Sweden. Norway, um, 265 days since Samuel Hines was nominated to be ambassador to Norway. We still haven't taken um, that up, that confirmation up. And in 2014, Norway scrambled its F-16 fighters 74 times to intercept Russian warplanes. I, I mean, when we talk about how do we support our partners in this effort, making sure that the people are in place who can help lead that fight is absolutely critical. You know, the fact that we've got Ambassador Shannon, who's been nominated to one of the most senior positions at the State Department as Undersecretary for Political Affairs, who would be responsible for coordinating the G7 to combat Russian aggression, is still waiting to be confirmed. Adam Zubin at the Treasury Department we haven't taken up his nomination, and we're looking at how we make sure that sanctions continue to bite on Russia. Um, I, you know, obviously, I'm preaching to the choir here, but I wonder if both of you could comment on what kind of messages that sends to um, our partners as we're trying to work together to fight Russian aggression, to shore up Europe. What does it say to them when we've got a Congress that refuses to confirm the people who are necessary for that fight. Senator Shaheen, God bless you. Um, I operate in the realm of policy, not politics. I, I have to defer to all of you for that. Uh, but from a foreign policy standpoint, this is an enormous issue. Um, sitting in Washington, we often don't appreciate the power of the voice of the United States and Americans. Even when CNAS or the Atlantic Council shows up in one of these countries under duress, it's a major story. You know how it is when you show up on your codels. The absence of having a consistent American voice um, to be able to help shape the narrative, shape the debate, provide understanding, whether it's from managing uh, all the crazy stories that come out about the United States and intel sharing. Um, it's a real, we're in this battle with one arm tied behind our back. Um, it, it's something that we hear almost every time we're in a country without an ambassador because 
it is certainly over-interpreted by the people of that country in terms of a signal, and we are always saying, please, you're, this has nothing to do with that. Please don't read this as a signal about our commitment to the relationship. But that doesn't carry a lot of water. Um, so I have to defer to the realm of politics, but it would be an astonish, astonishing and, and incredible development if we could empower uh, the ability of American foreign policy by just putting players on the field. Thank you. Ms. Smith. I, I just second that. I mean, it, it sends a disastrous signal to our allies that we don't care about their security, about the Russian probing that Sweden and Norway and many others are coping with, that Europe doesn't register on the list of foreign policy priorities, uh, and that Europe simply will not be a priority. Ever since the administration announced that it was going to be rebalancing towards the Pacific, Europeans have been asking questions, you get them, we get them quite regularly, about what does this mean about the value of the transatlantic relationship. And when we don't send an ambassador for an extended period of time, over a year, it definitely is translated into a message, a very clear message that Washington no longer cares about European security. And with the EU in the middle of this crisis and Europe under such strain right now, it is absolutely critical that the United States move forward with these nominations as soon as possible and confirmations. Well, thank you. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a message that we need to continue to talk about because, as you said, um, fighting with one arm tied behind our back is not the way we want to we position ourselves. I want to go back to um, some of the recommendations you laid out, Ms. Smith, and, and Mr. Wilson, you also talked about some of these. You talked about um, energizing the EU-US links and thinking about how we design and redesign our relationship. Can you talk a little bit more about how we do that? Because I agree that's one of the critical things we need to do. Think about every way in which we can support the EU. Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Uh, I think because the United States has been focused for quite some time on everything that's been happening in the Middle East and everything that's been happening in Asia, at times we've let Europe go a little bit. It's not that we don't have senior level officials in our government focused on this relationship, but it doesn't always get the number one or two slot on our list of priorities in terms of crises. And so as a result, what we've allowed is some atrophy in the relationship. And the EU-US... I, I don't disagree with that. What I'm interested in is, is what, we what can we do? So yeah. for example, right now when the EU and the US meets, you get the heads of state together at the highest levels. They sit down for a few hours. This is a heavily scripted event where leaders read prepared statements. Everything's been negotiated in advance. And we do nothing to take advantage Sounds of Sounds like fact. the Senate. Yeah. We, take it, not, we do nothing to take advantage of the fact that we have some of the best and brightest minds all together in a room for a few hours. We need freewheeling exchange. We need not prescripted statements. We need to ask hard questions. We could be running tabletop exercises with these groups, such as the one actually I'm running today with CNAS. Um, we could be looking at forecasting. We could be testing our assumptions. I mean, all of us assumed, Europe and the United States, that the migration crisis would stay 
in the neighborhood. We never sat down to ask ourselves, gee guys, let's think of the worst case scenario. What if they start showing up on the shores of Europe? It doesn't mean we can predict the future, but I think we should be thinking about as partners how we can test some of our assumptions about Rush what Russia's going to do next or where we're going to end up in Syria or what's going to happen in Libya. We need to utilize these. First of all, we have to hold these engagements more often. But secondly, we have to use them far more strategically than we're using them right now. Putting everyone in the room to listen to a couple of prescripted speeches does nothing to energize this group and make want people to show up. You know, I mean, essentially, what you hear from participants on both sides of the Atlantic is, oh, geez, I, you know, I really don't want to sit there for four or five hours to listen to this. Let's make it worth heads of state's time and ministers and assistant secretaries or whoever else is engaged and think more innovatively about how we use these engagements. Thank you. I, I'm out of time, but can I get Mr. Wilson to respond sure. to that? I'll do so briefly. I think important question. There are two challenges. The European Union doesn't put its most influential leaders into its top jobs. Uh, it sends the signal to us that they want to retain that decision-making authority in capitals and not in power. Imagine if Juncker were Merkel and Mogherini were Karl Bildt. Be a different dynamic. So one, this is a European choice. Second is the challenge of the institutional connection. It's awkward to work with the institutional. There is good. Our top diplomats are on the phone regularly. It's, it works. Um, the commission, uh, which has a lot of authority, does work with our cabinet from regulatory issues, and that, that works more or less. The president himself focuses on uh, key engagements, VTCs, video conferences with key leaders. What's broken is the USEU summits, institutional collaboration. Um, and so that's where there's a way to think about how do you rejigger that. And as Julie and some of our colleagues have thought about, what if we embedded TTIP in the idea, we don't really, we have a Washington treaty for the alliance. We don't want a treaty, but what if you thought about a, uh, some type of what we've talked about, a, a new Atlantic Charter that is a political sort of agreement that brings the European Union and the United States together. And within that, we embed something like TTIP so that we actually explain we're doing it at a more strategic level. You're never going to have this perfect. It's always going to require savvy diplomacy on the part of the United States, and that's okay. We can work capitals and Brussels together. It would certainly help if they start empowering um, Brussels, but it looks like they may not move in that direction. And I think that's a reality we're just going to have to contend with in some, some, some respects. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, before I turn to Senator Kane I, I, on the ambassador issue, I do, I do for those who don't pay attention to this on a daily basis, uh, both Norway and Sweden and Shannon, uh, actually all three of them have passed out of committee and are on the floor, and, and uh, what sometimes people don't realize is one senator can hold uh, a nomination. So, um, and without that hole being lifted, you end up having to go through a series of motions on the floor that take up a lot of time. I just want to make sure that uh, people understand it's not, quote, necessarily Congress. It's, uh, in many cases, uh, one or two individuals. and having received the multiple phone calls from Amy Klobuchar every Saturday relative to both Sweden and Norway and contorted myself on the floor to try to get uh, these through. I just want to make sure everybody knows uh, I don't think anybody's put more effort out to try to make that happen. And uh, in the case of Shannon, I think maybe there may be multiple uh, situations. It might even be bipartisan. I'm not sure, but uh, I know there's some some holes there, but uh, again, uh, I just did want to explain 
Uh, not in any way to defend Congress. I would never want to do that. But just to say that uh, this is a situation where time ends up get, getting burned on the floor. Um, a senator over a issue can, in fact, uh, with their rights, hold these. And uh, I, too, would like for them to be confirmed. Uh, Zubin has not yet come out of the banking committee. That's right. a separate committee. is serving in the capacity that uh, he would be confirmed to in a more permanent way. And uh, certainly, I have very warm feeling towards towards his and our mission too. But I just want to make sure we explain. Yeah, Mr. Yeah. Chairman, I just want to just underscore everything you said. You've been very uh, attentive in this committee to getting the information to all the members of this committee so that we can make the recommendations to the full floor. You've done that in a timely way, and you've been able to deal with all the members of this committee so that we've been able to schedule timely business meetings to. A move nominations, and I thank you very much, not from a party point of view, but from an institutional point of view. I think that's been the, the, the right step. And you're absolutely correct that an individual member can block the normal considerations of a nomination on the floor, and that is when we schedule it for a vote and debate and vote on it, uh, or uh, uh, we can do it by consent. Two problems have existed. One, we have individual members who won't release this, and you have worked with these individual members in some cases and have been successful, and I thank you for that. It's not easy to deal with some of the members that you've been dealing with, and I give you a high marks on that. Uh, but there's another way, and that is the leader can bring forward a cloture motion. These are important positions, and uh, the leader has chosen not to use the floor time for a cloture motion. And I understand the, the competition for floor time. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I must tell you, uh, we've been having long weekends uh, that we could have used for nominations. Uh, we have uh, work periods that we could be using for nominations. These are important positions. And I can tell you as one member, now I admit I'm not far from the Capitol where I live, but it seems to me uh, it's been successful in the past that just the threat of having a cloture motion on a person who's going to pass overwhelmingly, like a Tom Shannon, uh, will release or, or quicken the, uh, the uh, objection of the individual member or members who are holding up those nominations, because clearly there are 60 members of the Senate that are going to vote for his confirmation. So, and I've expressed this to the majority leader, and I'm disappointed that he hasn't used the power of the schedule to bring forward cloture votes so that we can move these. Uh, in a matter of transparency, I will be going to the floor, I hope, as early as today with some unanimous consent requests so that the individuals who are objecting at least are going to have to come to the floor and identify themselves as those who are objecting to moving these forward. But I do want to underscore the point that you made, and that is you have been incredible in the, your leadership of this committee and the best traditions of the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I, I thank you for that. Uh, but I just do want to underscore it is so difficult for us to deal with critical foreign policy issues, not just major national security issues, but just dealing with business people needs in countries, dealing with tra trafficking of individuals, dealing with drugs, dealing with economic opportunities, as well as huge national security issues when you don't have a confirmed representative in the country or a confirmed person in the cabinet that's responsible for those, uh, those positions. And we can't be silent about it. This committee has primary jurisdiction in this area. So we can't be silent about it. So I'm as frustrated as you are, and you have put more time into it than I have because of dealing with the individual members on your side of the aisle that have raised individual objections. I've spent a lot of time 
dealing with our leadership trying to get uh, accommodations to the majority leaders so that we can move as many as possible. But we've got to find a path forward. Uh, it's just the beginning of February. If we're going to be tying these up because we're going to get to a November election soon, this is ridiculous. We've got to move these nominations. But I thank you very much for your Thank leadership. you. I, I appreciate uh, people continuing to raise the point and could not agree more that uh, having people on a daily basis, having uh, you know, run a company that, you know, operate around our nation. I, it's uh, very difficult to be doing things in Wyoming if you don't have someone there on the ground and very difficult for us to leverage our foreign policy efforts without having someone there. So I appreciate the comments. I just wanted to explain that it's not necessarily Congress, it's you know, particular individuals in most cases. And if you want to say. Um, no, I just wanted to thank you for that explanation and clearly um, I did not intend those comments to be aimed at you or this committee, which I think has done a great job in trying to move people through. I, I would disagree on one point, though, and that is I think it is the Congress, because I think we have failed to address the rules that allow one person to hold up uh, nominees indefinitely, and I think that needs to change. But thank you very much for um, addressing the issue. Thank you, uh, Senator Kane. I'm so, thank, thank you for being so patient with a delayed discussion. Well, and I echo my colleagues' comments, uh, Senator, as both chair but also as ranking. Before you were chair, you've been very good in getting this committee to do what needs to be done. And the only thing that I find ironic is there's a high correlation between individuals placing holds who then also are out blasting the administration for not showing leadership in the world. <laughs> And they're the ones that are blocking us putting people in place. That's, there's not a complete 100% correlation, but it's usually the case that there's a near 100% correlation, but be that as it may. I want to ask a question about Turkey. Uh, eight of us, the first week in January, were in Vienna, Jerusalem, Ramallah, and Turkey. And I'm not a Turkey expert, and I kind of want you to educate me. My, my perception of Turkey over the last, well, really during the Erdogan, uh, leadership of the country is that there was an initial desire really to move toward Europe that was frankly rebuffed by Europe. And then there was a decision, well, okay, if you're not going to let me get closer to you, I'll turn my energies to the east and draw closer with the, with the Arab world and nations to the east. Um, as Turkey is now dealing with this massive refugee issue, Europe is now, you know, really liking Turkey and promising financial assistance to Turkey to take care of the two plus million that they're taking care of. But they would like them to actually keep more refugees in Turkey rather than having them come to Europe. So there's financial assistance and they've even put back on the table, hey, these EU accession discussions have been stalled for a while. Maybe we can, you know, ha open those discussions again. Talk a little bit about, is that a meaningful prospect? Would Turkey even be interested in it at this point? You know, they, I think they were interested in joining a club that seemed really cool you know, 15 years ago, and they may have more wariness about that now, but Turkey has its challenges too. I think a stronger Turkey-EU relationship could be very, very good, but what, what are the prospects of that? Um, I think on, uh, in terms of how Turkey's looking at the European Union right now, they uh, are certainly appreciative of the fact that the Europeans are willing to open some of these chapters, which should, you know, have to occur to, for them to walk towards formal membership. 
But I think the Turks are skilled diplomats. Uh, they fully appreciate the obstacles. I think they understand this is a long-term process, that no one is going to turn a key overnight, that this never happens overnight, even though they've been at it for a while. I think they'll seize on anything they can, but the reality is uh, that they both now need each other a great deal to deal with this migration crisis. Turkey needs financial resources, first and foremost, above and beyond any membership question to deal with the pressures that they're facing. And I think Europeans equally need Turkey to do everything it can to disrupt these smuggler routes, secure the border, and then work with them on some sort of process. The Germans and others are now looking at ways in which uh, they could still agree to take some of these refugees, but have them initially return to Turkey to be vetted and processed, and then Europe would, in theory, one model would be they could put a cap, so say Germany says, we'll still take 300,000, but we'll start with the ones sitting in Turkey, not with the ones showing up on our mm -hmm. doorstep. So they need to work all of this out, but it's an indispensable relationship, one that we should support. Uh, and again, as I noted in my opening remarks, this situation's about to get a heck of a lot worse. Russia and the Syrian regime have been aggressively going after Aleppo. Yeah. If Aleppo then falls into the hands, uh, back into the hands of Assad, Estimates are we could see another 500,000 refugees show up in Turkey, uh, which would just be I, I mean, devastating for many reasons. Mm -hmm. Also, even in Jordan, we're seeing instances where the Russians are now moving forward with bombing so far to the south. It's also spurring more refugee flow into Jordan. And so there's just this spring, it's going to be an enormous strain on both of these countries. And so above and beyond membership, I think both the Brussels and Ankara are focused on the migration crisis. Mm -hmm. Please, Mr. Wilson. I'll just add to this, this is one of the most complicated issues in that, I mean, Turkey's in play right now and it's surrounded by just compounding crises. And if you think from Erdogan, President Erdogan's perspective, as well as Prime Minister Davutoglu, they had some big ideas, unlike some other, they had big ideas. Mm -hmm. At first it was moving quite dramatically with reforms at advanced path with the EU, mm -hmm. that hit a dramatic roadblock. Then they embraced the strategy of no, uh, uh, no problems with their neighbors and really began this charm offensive Look at that today, it's in tatters. It's a disaster from Syria to Russia. And then he had a big strategy of outreach to his own Kurdish population to fix it. And now we have warfare in Turkey's southeast again. These were big ideas and they're all in complete tatters. At the same time, we see this potential of driving Turkey away from our transatlantic community. This is gonna be tough, it's gonna be long-term. It is an ally. I think we've gotta engage, particularly Erdogan, We've got to cultivate over the long term the demands within Turkish society that actually want to be part of this community because there's no, you know, in the short term, yes, you may open a few chapters for negotiation as part of this deal. There are some bigger ideas as part of the refugee deal uh, to actually put on the table the prospect of visa-free travel for Turks to Europe, uh, which would be dramatic and over the long term is part of helping to create societies that are going to demand the kind of change at home that will embed Turkey closer in the, uh, in the community, in the transatlantic community. And I think we need to stay focused on those, those fundamental pieces. That's gonna take quite a while. Um, there will never be a Turkey in Europe until Europe comes to grip with a sense of national identity that begins to replace the basis of ethnicity and religion as their basis of identity. In fact, I don't, I'm not sure that you can even have a commitment to Europe until that happens, and it may never happen. 
Um, it may be one of the things that evolves eventually out of this refugee migration flow to have an identity attached to political entities' governance. Um, so we're in this for the long haul. It's gonna be bumpy. There's some bad trend lines both in the country and in the region, uh, but I think it actually is an imperative uh, for us to remain very engaged with Ankara. One positive trend line that I saw um, is, you know, if you can tell anything by how much time the leader of a foreign country wants to spend with you, Erdogan is not necessarily the one that wants to spend the most time talking to congressional delegations. But when we visited in early January, and I viewed this as sort of in the shadow of the challenge with Russia and the downing of the plane, we had a two and a half hour meeting that he, was, he would have taken to three and a half hours except we had another meeting to go to. There seemed to be an intense realization, wow, being a NATO ally is an important thing. The US relationship is very important. They talked a lot about a desire to eventually be concluded in the TTIP, included in the TTIP discussions. So a whole series of things. There may be an opening for, you know, uh, a deepening of the relationship in positive ways with Turkey because they do perceive now a degree of an existential threat because of the renewal of this historic, you know, Russian-Turk or Russian-Ottoman uh, animosity. And so that's something that may give us an opportunity. But thank you for your thoughts on that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Yeah, I, I would just, uh, uh, Agree. I, you know, was there not long ago, and far more time than I would have ever expected uh, in a one-on-one -on -one kind of situation. And I do think uh, your analysis is correct. So that we don't give Tom Shannon uh, or the State Department additional heartburn, I did ask my staff to clarify it is not bipartisan objection. I think it's uh, in a similar state as the the other folks that you mentioned. So, Tom, if you're listening, uh, calm down, uh, Senator Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm sorry I missed the excitement earlier, uh, but uh, thank you to the witnesses for being here as well. And I'm, I apologize if I'm repeating a couple of the questions. Um, if you look at the arc of foreign policy starting in uh, the Middle East, from Syria to Iran to uh, China to North Korea, uh, go around the globe uh, now to uh, what we see in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, uh, challenges in Turkey, it, we face a very complex set uh, on multiple fronts. Perhaps we haven't seen in decades, if ever, unlike we've seen in decades, if ever. And so I spent some time just a couple of weeks ago in Europe visiting with General Breedlove, uh, visiting with General Hodges, uh, was able to spend some time with Ambassador Lute, our mission to NATO, and our EU mission as well. And one of the terms that kept coming up in every single one of these meetings was this issue of muscle memory that after looking uh, to the Middle East for so long, we have lost the muscle memory in Europe that we need to fight a war in Europe, uh, to, to resist Russia in Europe, to do what it takes to defend Europe. And so as you look across our NATO allies, and, as, and I don't know if you've seen this report, it just came out, so it's a, I wouldn't expect that you have seen it, but Rand came out with a report uh, just yesterday, I believe, and here's a quote from the Rand report. Uh, they did a series of war games uh, testing uh, capabilities in Europe. Are you familiar with it? Did you talk about this already today? Okay. Uh, no, but I mean, the quote is this. Uh, the game's findings are unambiguous. As currently postured, NATO cannot successfully defend the territory of its most exposed members. Uh, and it goes into quite de some detail about what that means. So I guess from uh, a military muscle memory standpoint, we know that it's a challenge now to move uh, tanks from Germany to Estonia because you have to permits and everything else you have to go through. In times of war, I'm sure that will change. Uh, but what diplomatic muscle memory has the U.S. lost when it comes to security in Europe, diplomatic pressure on Russia, and uh, sort of the diplomatic measures that we have to regain 
in order to protect our NATO allies. Mr. Wilson. Thank you, Senator. Yes, the, the term muscle memory has come up because you point out correctly, whether it's defense planning or these exercises, um, the micro problems they've encountered really underscore how far we've moved away from some of that. That's in train, and General Breedlove is actually doubling down, as you well know, on working through those. There are a couple pieces, though, that I'd point out. One is the most vulnerable, so the Baltic and the Black Sea are the two most areas that are uh, vulnerable. You've heard uh, the discussion about A2AD. Um, and so there's quite a bit of necessity to think about how we actually have presence and deterrence that's effective in the, in the Baltic, and particularly in the Black Sea because of something called the Montreux Convention really limits our military presence. Those are two particular areas of concern. I'm actually even more concerned about the Black Sea area because I think it's more vulnerable for Russian uh, action. But at the same time, we actually don't want to get into that game, ultimately. We want to avoid that game. And so deterrence is, yes, it's about activities and exercises, muscle capabilities, but it's also about the psychology of your adversary. And I think it's important that we move on these specific pieces, the capabilities, the prepositioning, what we're doing in the Baltic Black Sea. But I think the way that we communicate that we're in for a long-term comprehensive strategy to check what Russia is doing to rewrite the rules and embedding that in a coherent strategy that we communicate as such, we're doing pretty good things on sanctions, on energy, on all these various pieces. To integrate that with clarity in a way that makes clear to our adversary that there is a, a political uh, incredible plan to back it up. And so it actually means you might actually have to spend less money, do fewer exercises, because you've captured that psychology of deterrence, while combining that with the old diplomatic muscle movement of alliance management. And we lost some of that muscle movement as well. It takes time. I mean, look at the Cold War history of the alliance. I mean, look at the fights. What's the over most alarming loss of muscle memory, do you think, from a, from a diplomatic standpoint? So it's a, I think we've assumed that because of the EU, because of where Europe's come, that it, it, um, the Europeans are able to lead on many of these issues today. If the Europeans leading on a, Russia, a negotiation with Russia without the, Europeans by, without the Americans by their side, it will be a bad negotiation. We will fail. And in the Cold War, we understood that American uh, leadership at the table on many of these is issues was fundamental to getting it right. The Europeans would often complain, uh, but they would also be thankful. And I think in some respects, we have to calibrate that. Europe's a different place. We've got to be savvy with our diplomacy, but we can't just exhort Europe to get it right. We're actually going to have to drive this forward on, on the whole set of equations. It requires time. It requires an understanding that we've got to bring more of these leaders into the Oval Office. We've got to engage with them more regularly. Um, we've got to cultivate that so that we are taking our closest allies who have never been coherent in any of the crises we faced in the Cold War, and we're rallying them behind clarity of vision and principle that's backed up by strategy. And sometimes when we don't lead with that, it feels like we've got uh, a scattered uh, lack of leadership or a scattered sense of, of reaction among our allies. So how do you find that clarity, though, when you've got part of our NATO allies looking east, part of them looking south, uh, and that almost seems like a hard line in between the two that you can't find the clarity that we need to. So what, what steps do we take there? So this is where I think this, the, the alliance is struggling right now, that it's trying to protect its own, Article 5, strengthen the alliance, but it has no idea what to do about the fires on its periphery. You can't be secure if your neighbors are on fire. So I think we actually have to take it head on. What is the role that we can play with our European allies and thinking about how we project stability in the east and the south? It's not easy. But for example, within the alliance, a major defense capacity building initiative that was focused on 
who are not the 55 partners we have for the alliance, but who are the key few strategic partners where we really need to see their capacity enhanced because it affects our security. And you could identify Ukraine, Tunisia, if we get to that point in Libya, in the context of one major NATO initiative at Warsaw on defense capacity building that unifies our southern and eastern strategies. That's where there's been a little bit of uh, hesitancy, I think, within the alliance. And it's going to take something like that to help bridge that gap between east and south. And, and Mr. Smith, I, I don't want to deny the opportunity to you to speak on the same issue, but I, I wanted to ask one more question, too, and I'm running out of time. What happens, what, what's the fallout if uh, sanctions aren't renewed in uh, midsummer? Uh, Russian uh, sanctions on Russia? Uh, this By the European Union. It's bad news uh, because what it does is it sends a message to Moscow that the transatlantic community is no longer united, and that's exactly what Moscow has been hoping for all along. Moscow is actively doing everything it can to divide Europe from within, and it's actively trying to divide Europe from the United States. So if we hit the summer, right around the Warsaw NATO summit, and we have to simultaneously announce that Europe and the United States can no longer move forward and join hands on the sanctions policy, it sends all the wrong signals to Moscow. We have to find a way to stand united, even as Europe faces all of these crises. And on your other point about Europe, in general, I would say two things. For years and years and years, we were able to focus on Europe, that neighborhood, and the Soviet Union all through the Cold War. Once the wall fell, it was very much about what Europe and the United States would do somewhere else. And now, on the diplomatic front and military front, we have to say to ourselves, wait, hold up. It's not about what Europe and the United States are going to do in Syria. It is, in part. But guess what? It's also about returning to that transatlantic agenda. The problem is, when we return to that transatlantic agenda, the generation of people that have those transatlantic instincts, that have personal relationships that speak European languages, that speak English on the other side, have all, in many ways, fallen away. I mean, for us as a country, the foreign policy community that's coming up through the ranks now is very much trained to focus on China. They speak Mandarin, they speak Arabic, they speak Farsi. I don't get as many people coming through saying, I want to be you, someone who's focused on Europe. Now, I get a few more of those folks. But by and large, we've had a generational shift that we feel on both sides of the Atlantic. I can't find as many members of the German Bundestag or in the French parliament that have those transatlantic instincts. And frankly, we've seen changes in our own Congress as well. And so we have to reinvest in these relationships, find the transatlantic experts, and spend the time focusing on a neighborhood that, frankly, we thought was kind of solved in many ways in terms of international security crises. And so we've been put on notice by Moscow that this neighborhood is by no means solved. And we have to ensure that as Russia tries to divide us, we stay united. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Very good. Does anyone? I will say that uh, I think there's been tremendous interest in this, uh, in this hearing, and you all have been outstanding witnesses. And not only do I appreciate the, the information uh, that was put forth, but also the passion with which it was done. And, and uh, you all have just been extraordinary. So thank you. If you, would, if you wouldn't mind, we uh, would like to leave the record open through the close of business Friday. And uh, would love to have quick, uh, fairly quick responses, which will be a part of the record, if that's OK. And without further ado, we thank you. We thank the committee members. And uh, the meeting is adjourned.